in a world where fake news is all news. Where the fight for equal pay is just demonstration wrestling between white ladies at the top. One soft bear and one hard lady rise up from the piss drop of the oligarchs to scream capitalism no more. He is Naggers. She's the Vag. Together, they'll rip away false consciousness and your heart. Knackers and the Vag. It's part two of our International Women's Day special. To discuss the state of the feminist disunion, I was joined at a shonky table by the distinctly non-shonky Dr. Shakira Hussein, who we left in part one answering her text messages. I think I'm going to make you put that on um, on aeroplane. Yes. Are, you, are you getting important messages? My mum wants to know what time I'll be home. Okay. <laughs> Shakira doesn't live with her mum. Her mum's actually just... just um, just visiting, but yeah, if you could um, talk talk to that, please. Like, draw that out. There is this, I guess, because people are participating um, to a large degree in push button publishing themselves, creating their own social media. That they understand this is distinct from traditional media. Um, so people think, okay, we're going to have to get there. This is something that fuels what Me Too has become, right? Oh, yes, definitely, this mixture of, you know, a psychological need which I completely understand, which I am unconvinced will serve the purpose for which, you know, for which people are hoping and I'm braced for disappointment. Can we use a concrete example here? Um, If you're not Australian, you, you may not. And I know for various reasons you might not wish to get into this. Um, a couple of days ago in Australia, there was a particular journalist, uh, a, a woman journalist, um, who, you know, for years has reported on things in a particular way um, from a particular perspective. That's that's okay, you know, freedom of the press and all of that. Um, she's often written about quite powerless groups and chastised them. Fine, fine, fine. At one juncture in her career, around about 1990, she wrote what was apparently a mildly, in her words, no, nobody can, has seen or can remember the review, a mildly negative review, in her words, of um, an Australian called, oh, you know what I'm talking about, a dude called Tim Ferguson, Right. Tim was in um, a group that had formed in the 80s. Oh, my God, those go-go 80s. Um, They were a little bit different from the present. Um, So this group, the Doug Anthony All-Stars, obviously they had been reading, you know, know, that um, Antonin Artaud or whatever his name is, like the theatre of cruelty guy who used to make weird noises Mm. and, like, um, encourage abusive audiences. I grew up in Canberra. You went to uni in Canberra. Um, there was always yeah, somehow I think of them as being very Canberran, although they didn't become famous until they were not in Canberra, yeah. surprisingly. Yeah, I mean, I grew up seeing them. I'm not. I'm, I, I maintain friendships with none. I never had friendships. I just feel that I need to make this clear because in recent days on the internet, a lot of people are saying you're standing up for him because blah. Not my mate. I don't know him. Haven't spoken to him in years. Perfectly reasonable person, as far as I know. Anyway. 
he got a bad review 27 years ago. He sent faxes. You know, he identified himself. Um, this is before email, remember, kids. Um, he identified himself as the sender of the faxes. He was sending them from the office in which he was making television. He was a public figure. He sent, you know, obscene letters to this woman saying that her reviews were wrong. Now, they were quite, um, you know, this is written in this um, overtly vulgar style. I don't think that they're particularly defensible. Um, and I and, and they, illustrated. In yeah, and illustrate. I mean, frankly, the illustrations are, you know, I can look at them objectively and say that they're hilarious, but I have also had the experience of being sort of stalked um, physically and, and sort of threatened in mail and maybe a picture um, of, you know, a woman with a penis would have upset me too on a particular day. Anyway, so um, according to the journalist who recently did her own Me Too thing, he received, uh, she received five of these things and, you know, the story was um, that she talked to his, her employer, her employer said she should talk to his employer and ask him to stop. He didn't. And so now this is characterised um, and published in a fairly, you know, I think we can say fairly conservative Australian uh, newspaper or online about the pain that she has felt for these 27 years. And finally, because of Me Too, she can come out and she can say, oh, gosh, you know, look what's happened and thank you so much to all my sisters for permitting me this privilege of, of talking about the pain that I've concealed. Now, absolute, um, you, you know, um, understanding that that sort of thing may have been frightening, a little bit of impatience that there was not the background to the story that her employer's did not take the action that they could have. If she was being genuinely distressed and she'd expressed that to them and she said that she did and she was, you know, a salaried um, member of staff, her employers ought to have acted. But 27 years later, and, you know, I mean, okay, that's neither here nor there. Let's say six months later, she profits, she benefits or at least her employers benefit from this disclosure and you can't critique the way in which she made the disclosure in the current milieu because you're understood as anti-feminist. I see this as a time where certain truths are used in feminism and elsewhere um, and you take those truths. So was it inappropriate and potentially threatening for this man to send this woman these correspondences? Yes, there's no question of that. And, you know, is the woman within her rights to, um, you know, talk about this publicly? Well, yes, I guess so. But through those truths, a number of falsehoods, it seems to me, um, are allowed to emerge. And, I mean, without wishing to overreach, which I know in writing I contend to because sometimes I just want to shake fuckers and, you know, I mean metaphorically, of course, not in any violent way, but just sort of say, see this view, see this view, understand that this is not a reflex, you know, but this is this is the work of, this is an editorial decision, this is something that has been prepared, this is something that has been decided, this may feel to you very emotional, very real, just as real as a tweet, just as real as you crying after, you're, you know, you're trying to come to terms with something that happened and you finally realise that it was abuse. It's not the same thing, you know, if it's 
in a newspaper. It, it really isn't. There's all these decisions that, are, that have gone along. So it's, you know, I mean, the other day I, I just couldn't sleep because of it. I was quite, you know, like obsessed with this, um, maybe because I knew some of the people or, you know, I, I don't know. But what happened was I started to, you know, WMD, Weapons of Mass Destruction, has been on my mind a lot these past maybe 18 months because I can see America gearing up for new war, new invasions. And despite what they say about their Middle, their, their middle East policy, I don't think that they're going to leave that territory alone until it's all safe for Israel, scorched and bloody. And I see these narratives for war just appearing and people taking them on. And so you start with a little bit of a truth, okay? You know, Saddam Hussein, not a nice guy, right? True. And then this truth permits a whole lot of falsehoods to, to grow up around it. Do, do you see what I'm, what I'm getting at? Like the, the, the media will then, you know, take a story, take an official narrative. Not that Me Too is an official narrative, but, you, you know, something that is quite true and the facts are all true um, scales up. But when something gets bigger, when something scales, it doesn't just behave in the same way as it would on a small scale, which is me telling a guy off for, you know, having been inconsiderate to me recently or in the past or saying you're sexist or that was abusive or don't harass me or I'm angry with what you did to me at work 15 years ago. Well, I didn't know Tim Ferguson and don't know Tim Ferguson personally, and um, but he was always... I thought his persona was as the nasty member of the All Stars, and you know, and and the All Stars, their routine was that they were nasty, was that they would say rude, and not just rude, but in, get transgressive and in your face and aggressive, and that they were pro and provocative, and also that that was part of their manner with their audience was that they weren't. Of course, their audience liked them for it, but they were not trying to get the audience to like them. They and the, yeah. but the audience loved them for that. But I have actually reviewed one of Tim Ferguson's more recent shows because we have the same disease and therefore I was interested. He has multiple cirrhosis and so do I. And so knowing that context, but I don't know at what date he knew that or began to feel that there was something wrong with his physical health. But that I did, one, these letters he signed off with love and leukaemia with one and love and some other disease on another and to me, the fact that knowing or speculating on what his own physical health might have been, which of course he may not, which the journalist, the recipient of the letters could not have known at the time, mm. but that did to me take the sting out of putting that in her because I know how, I know what that period of uncertainty when you're coming into a disease is like, and I remember when I was first diagnosed and a colleague asked me how I was basically post-diagnosis and his area was sociology of health and I didn't like him either. And, <laughs> and, so, and so I said, oh, yeah, well, multiple cirrhosis, I, I wish it was you instead of me. And then I tried to tone that down by saying because you'd write a good paper about it and I can't be bothered with it's not my area of interest, so I shouldn't have the illness. You should have it. But, yeah, I do understand. a cheeky thing. <laughs> but, I, yeah, so I understand when you've 
are still coming to terms with or perhaps don't yet know what is wrong with your own body yeah. to exp- to vent that on other people. And so I can't so I couldn't read this report about Tim Ferguson in an entirely objective way. I was framing it through that yeah. and also framing it in terms of you know his current now physical frailty and his now much nicer and more gentle persona I mean, as well. Yeah, be- which I know that yeah. isn't about how you would react and, and no, what his behaviour was. No, this is something that colours your understanding and yeah. mine. Shakira mm. and I are actually friends because of multiple sclerosis, which is weird. I mean, this is how we started communicating. I knew who you were, you knew. Cool story, the Vag. But Knacker says it's time to be quiet. Maybe ask Dr. Hussein about intersectionality, alany, alany. On Knacker's, Knacker's, Knacker's. And the Vag. Well, it has come to be used to just describe the fact that women of colour and and or disabled women have experienced experienced multiple forms of oppression and just left at that, just, oh, well, you have this double or triple load of um, having to deal with with sexism and racism and or ableism and... That, that must, must be really yes, hard. Yes, the, yeah. the, the weight of all that must be too much. Whereas it's called intersectional, it's not called loading, it's called intersectional because what Kimberly Crimshaw was describing and others have taken further is the way that the experience of one of those forms of oppression is intersects with and is the experience of the other so that a black woman experiences racism differently to a black man and a black woman experiences sexism differently to a white woman. And if we take Muslims as an example, being that that's the community I belong to, because the Muslim community is regularly vilified over Islam's supposedly inherently patriarchal and violent attitudes towards Australian gender norms because we all know that Aussies are completely... Oh, we've got it all sorted. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. Sweden's got nothing on us. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we, we live in um, a, a borderless, fluid, genderless space, don't you know? Yeah, yeah, it is a feminist haven down here. It's utopia. Yeah, yes. Well, when Assange said that Sweden was the Saudi Arabian of, of feminism... You know, oh, can you and I not get started on <laughs> or, WikiLeaks, okay. which is another thing that I argue with now... Julian Assange in what he has said about um, Sweden and Sweden. Yeah, what did you just say? Moving forward with knackers and the badge. Well, returning to the example of Muslim communities, then if we return to experiences and responses around sexism and, and patriarchy, you're kind of caught in this double bind, and I'm not the only writer to use that term in this or similar context, of um, then it's used and, and sometimes quite overtly, quite explicitly by male leaders or quasi-leaders in that community sh- to shut women down, to say, don't speak out about these abuses, which we know are a problem, but keep it quiet, you know, just keep mm. it, keep it, we'll solve it in-house, don't wash the dirty laundry, because then you will be inviting this type of intervention and which you know nobody wants that. So just you know, so just we'll we'll solve it. We'll we'll work it out. We'll we'll have internal processes. Yeah. Would you, you know, say so don't and so and which means that it never and like we we will we'll deal with these with this issue of misogynistic behaviors and practices. We'll deal with that once this we're in this moment of crisis though, 
where the government is is try- out to discipline us, where the media is, you know, running these highly inflammatory stories about us, that, and this and your gender concerns are a, too much, are a luxury that we can't afford to indulge at the moment. We'll sort that out can later. You, and so women's yeah. issues are constantly can put I back you, on the back burner. Okay, and, so there were some very interesting decisions. Um, I think that um, Muslim women chiefly living in the West and, you know, your more reputable, um, more telegenic Muslim woman, um, there seems to be, from my perspective, some decisions made also about not so much around the stuff of the the behaviour of Muslim men. I mean, there's plenty of fucking decent Muslim men, right? Yeah. But And there's plenty of women in great relationships. Um, but there also seems to have been um, a concession sometimes to the dominant Western narrative, which I can totally understand. Like, you're, you know, people in your community are being abused, your kids are getting shit at, at school, um, you're under um, scrutiny um, in many cases. I know plenty of, you know, loudmouth um, Muslim folks in Australia. Um, inshallah, may they continue to be loudmouthed. The more loudmouthed people um, saying decent things, the better, of course. Um, you know, so they've experienced AGO coming to them and so, you know, you have this very, very real experience every day of feeling like you're under scrutiny and having to behave like a not, not feeling like you are. We are under this hyper-surveillance, whether, whether by, in a formal sense, by the state, by Asia or anything else, or just, you know, but, but I don't want to say by the general community, by the, but, you know, but we are, but we are we're scrutinised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. surveillance. Yes, yeah, this panoptic. Like ASIO surveillance, and you know that's true. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. we've got comedian friends who talk about their experience of being... Yeah. you know, of attending ASIO interviews and, yeah. a, you know. But the, and particularly the, the UK and but Australia as well of, you know, of schools being regarded as as part of their duty to be keeping an eye on Muslim students and, yeah. You know, yeah. and, and looking out for signs of radicalisation. Yeah, fucking and, hell. And, and tendencies which may indicate extremism. Yeah. Like, as, like, like, as I've told you before, the anecdote about the, about the, um, woman intelligence expert, as in she had a PhD, who said that uh, when a teenage Muslim girl stops plucking her eyebrows, this should be seen as a warning sign of possible radicalization, or she might just be getting a Frida Kahlo on. I saw a lot of women um, sort of around about the, you know, a few years when we actually did, when I say we, I mean white mainstream culture, began to invite reputable Muslim women occasionally on the talk shows and what have you, and then they would show up in, a, you know, a head covering and the question was asked over and over again and the answer was it's a choice, which I thought knowing a little bit about religion and having, you know, experienced faith and, and knowing a few Muslims, I mean, knowing a little bit about a Abrahamic religion as well. The whole point is with, and this is whether you're Christian or Jewish or Muslim, I can't really speak to Dharmic religions, I don't know enough about them, but a lot of it is about being faithful is, well, that's the choice that you make and after that it's not a choice, right? But it's understood in the West. It's better understood in the West if you say it's my choice. 
Yes, some colleagues, Tanya Dreyer, and I'm afraid I don't remember her co-author, wrote a paper about a workshop that they sat in on in the kind of the mid-2000s when this was evolving, which was a media workshop for Muslim women. And they were, and of course, one of the questions like, why do you wear that thing? And workshopping answers around it. And the rationales they were giving, and choice was in there as in, Nobody's forcing me to do that. Choice meaning lack of coercion, not choice meaning consumer choice, like what brand of cornflakes you buy. And but but the others were yes, yeah. But the others were like like modesty and and faith and so on. But the media workshop conveners said, well, that is the one that is going to speak, the one that is going to be best understood by this yep. mainstream non-Muslim audience Completely is right. choice. Yes, is choice. So so lean heavy on the choice, which I'm not then saying that when that response about, oh, I wear it because it's my choice, I'm not therefore saying that that's manufactured, that that's just, that, that that's just takia, to use a term that I hope you'll have, that the listeners will not have spent enough time in the dark underbelly on the internet to uh, to be familiar with, but it's a term that the far right has interpreted to mean a religious obligation by Muslims to lie to non-Muslims, and I won't go into the right, various right. ways in which that's wrong. Yeah, I'm not no, saying so, that this was not yeah, right. It's, it was it's just, not. I mean, this is media spin. Yeah, it's a genuine answer that has been, but that has been emphasised in a particular way because it was seen as the. Yeah, because it's just like yeah. um, the other night I attended a um, Purim dinner, mm-hmm. and you know there's mitzvahs mm-hmm. which I tried to observe. Um, I was texting a friend in Sydney and saying, Ariella, Ariella, um, you know, do do I say Happy Purim or is it like Passover where it's not happy? Mm-hmm. It's like no, 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 Happy is fine, and you know, and say this and you know, bring some gifts in a basket, et cetera, et cetera. And she was explaining the, the, the mitzvahs. I mean, these are, you know, in practising faith, there's mm. certain in Abrahamic, am I getting that word right? Um, yeah, but, r- religions, yeah. um, you know, whether you're Catholic or or, or, or whatever you, you are, um, it's not a choice. You make the choice to have faith. Mm. Um, you can make the choice to have faith. And then when you've made that choice. It's an obligation. Everything else is an obligation. So, you know, some women, you know, I mean, I know that there's a lot of debate and esteemed clerics debate and some of them come out on the side of, well, no, you don't have to wear hijab and then some of them very strongly do. And, um, you, you know, so there's different interpretations. It's a very large religion, just as Christianity is a very large religion. Well, actually, the line about it being an obligation, I was reading a refute. Zakaria was writing about, when, but she's not the only one who said this, Rafia Zakaria is a Pakistani mm. background writer, that the French outlawing of the hijab oh. reinforced this obligation because once people started trying to tell women they had to remove it and they had to explain why that wasn't an option, they had to. They responded by saying, well, I can't remove it because it's a religious obligation, it's a central part of my faith. So on the one hand, there's this shape, there's this response to outsiders of saying, oh, I'm wearing this, it's because it's my choice. 
which on the is, other hand, then say, which is what a fairly secular society yeah, yeah, would understand. Then, it's like, oh, it's your choice. Oh, choose your choice. Yeah. Oh, do you want Jimmy Choose or, or 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 do you want to line up at the new Gucci store? Oh my God, so much to choose from. Yeah, but and then, that's but how then, it yeah, resonates but in yes, the West. And, and but then if a government authority starts telling you you can't wear it, you say, well, no, I can't take it off because it's an obligation. I can't choose to take it off because the government tells me to take it off because God told me not to take it. You know, because also in a society that allegedly respects religious freedom, if you say it is my religious obligation to wear it, therefore you can't tell me to take it off yeah. because that because that's not showing respect for... And, the, the, you know, I mean, and, the, you know, we don't seem to allow for the figure of the cultural Muslim. Mm. You know, I mean, it's always the... it's it, it, And there are well, it's people usually who are culturally used, Muslim. Yeah. Well, it's usually used in a derogatory Sent, like, but as a, a, well, yeah, but like secular Jew or cultural Jew. Yeah, that's um, that's an, an atheist Jew for that matter. Yeah, is, is um, and um, you know, I sort of feel like an atheist Catholic, mm. like I'm a faithless Catholic, and there's certain practices that I continue mm. um, doing Lent at the moment. I mean, I'm doing it out of respect for somebody who's recently deceased and um, his widow, um, my aunt, lovely woman, very mm. faithful, um, attends a Jesuit church and I'm doing it for her. I mean, I don't think I've even t- told her, but it's a, it's a mark of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, even, I mean, I, then I'm not now trying to say, hey, don't worry, they don't all believe it. You know, I'm not even saying that, but I'm, you know, but it becomes cultural as well. Well, we, particularly at times when the community's under fire as it is at the moment, and there's a number of Muslims in public who well, who were not known for being Muslim prior to 9-11, who started to, it's not that they weren't Muslim before, but they didn't have it as part of their public persona because mm. it wasn't relevant to their job. Uh, someone who was in banking, was it Ahmed Fakhur? I don't recall. Anyway, and more than one, anyhow, mm. who started to talk about being Muslim, who started to underline that aspect of their faith, who might have had Angl- um, anglicised names and then reverted to the more Arabic-y sounding yeah. version of their names Simply to show when you're when you're saying derogatory, making those derogatory remarks about Muslims, you're talking about me, and I want you to know that I don't want you to feel that you can indulge in this sort of hate speech when I'm around and think I'm going to, you know, and think that it doesn't impact on yeah. me and think that I'm not going to react. Yeah, so, I mean, and there's no, I mean, it, it, all of this stuff is, um, you know, completely understandable. I mean, <laughs> making a decision with those who you know, may not be very much like you but are still in a particular class that is demonised and, and then strangely, you know, created. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and you may have parents or siblings or whatever who are, who are more religious than you are, who are more, who fit the stereotype of, the, of Muslimness more closely than you do and you love them and they love you and, you know, so you... Um, yeah, so it impacts on you in that way as well. Yeah. Um, International Women's Day. I have been having these fantasies and I've invited you and you've said naff off, Helen, and so you agreed to uh, talk with me in a constructive way on the internets instead. I've been having these fantasies of occupying International Women's Day. I was getting really obsessed the other day and I was looking at the International Women's Day events and... Um, there are very few that cost less than one hundred dollars to mm-hmm. attend, and um, there are a diminishing number that are not 
um, sponsored by a bank. And, you know, I've actually written to some of the ladies that I know who are speaking at these events that are sponsored by financial institutions. And I've said, look, I mean, you know that the, the Western credit boom, which is probably going to crack in a regional sense here in Australia, but you, you know that this ongoing credit boom has caused, you know, unimaginable horror and continues to fund everyday horror. Like, I mean, open-cut coal mines are still financed by banks. If there's a little bit more, um, you know, attention on one than the other, say like Adani, well, then the banks might make a show of of withdrawing their financing. But, I mean, the banking system is, you know, one part of the machinery of capitalism that you could make the argument that it, it it diminishes the quality of life or, in fact, life itself here in Australia and all around the world. I'm not saying those individuals are evil. I'm not saying the banks are aware that they're doing these things, but in a particular understanding, you know, this system of, of loans, of creating nothing with share buybacks, et cetera, et cetera. Finance creates a lot of shit. And I've been writing to some of these women, you know, appearing at some of these things sponsored by the big four banks and sponsored by finance companies like Goldman Sachs and asking them why or to reconsider. And, um, well, I haven't got any replies yet. Is this a concern? I mean, it's not just about you showing up and getting your head photographed next to a banking logo. That's that's not the problem, but it is the ability to see the background and this idea of a feminism which is all-encompassing but it's really not because you need $100 to go to these networking brunches and you need to be a reputable woman who's succeeded to talk at one and you need to believe very much in this idea of trickle-down equality. I can do it, so can you. I've, you know, managed to claw my way up, so can you. All you need to do is be empowered so, you know, Shanila that we know, Shanila, what's her name? Kojimoji. Oh, thank you very much. Um, she writes frequently um, uh, Pakistani-American or just uh, she's she's at the... Oh, she's in, based in America at the moment. She's based in America and, at the moment. In, and the, she, in the United States, I should say, because people from Latin America don't like it when... America, when the United States gets described as America. Oh, right. Um, yes, of course, of course. Um, so she's um, uh, she's writing um, often about um, Pakistan and this sort of mania that people have for for the figure of the girl. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, we see girl appear in book titles and you, you go girl and, you know, but this idea that um, if, if we give girls better education mm. but mostly if we give girls the chance to feel like they can do anything, then they'll be able to do anything in, in a great uh, post on the London School of Economics website, Shanila does this thing about the figure of the girl. I mean, and just in about 800 words, does this you know, this uh, beautiful thing about, you know, saying, yes, you know, young women, all women have agency. I don't deny their agency. They do extraordinary things as activists. But can you tell me, I'm completely paraphrasing here because it's been about a year since I read this piece, can you tell me that the US war machine is not a factor that we shouldn't also consider? Can you, you know, tell me that, um, you know, the lack of access to the basic means for life mm. are not things that we should also consider? So you want to empower girls. You and want then to. Ex- you, then you ex- expect that they are then able to deal with these incredibly 
you know, these that, that, that they then have these superpowers that, that will deliver us all. Yeah, and it's, there's this very white liberal dream that if only we inspire and educate everybody, that they too will be able to share this great wealth. And all- a girl with a book and a pen is, you know, and that's not to say that. Well, Malala. I love is, Malala. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. And yeah, and that's an incredibly powerful story. I am not on board with the. Malala hate campaign. Well, not just a hate campaign. The Taliban shot her in the head, you know. And I'm and I'm also not on board with the with the rhetorical hate campaign against Malala one bit. But and then you're not you're it, not on board either with the you know the the attempts by the the West to you know show um, her as um, an exemplar of everything that all women can do. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, you know there was that beautiful moment when she was at the White House where you know. Obama attempted to, you know, use her completely to justify, you know, US foreign policy yeah. um, and see, you know, you've shown us what, what girls can do and you fight back in all of this palaver. And then she politely asks him to stop um, sending drones because that, that will, you know, he says congratulations for advocating for women's education and then she comes back with, you know, in a very polite way, well, it's easier for go- girls to go to school if you, you know, if they don't suffer drone attack. Yeah, and more more drone attacks just means more terrorism. And we don't see that Malala. And Malala comes from a well. She, I'm not saying that she was brainwashed into her left wing politics, but yeah, she comes from a very left wing family. She addressed the Marxism conference in Pakistan I know. before she had to leave Pakistan. So exciting! <laughs> yes. And yeah, so and she and da- I mean, Dad's a big old commie. Yeah, and and she. Has made, and she, well, she's and she's a bright kid. yeah, and she has critiqued U.S. imperialism, and that is not part of that. Just does not get reported. Oh shit, no! It's yeah, just like, it's oh dear her, little Malala. Yeah, oh, yeah, and this, you know that she's this anodyne thing. No, she's yeah, a communist. Yeah, and you know she and and she's a very perceptive um, critic of U.S. foreign policy. But what we hear and what we are shown of Malala is just the the unthreatening, unthreatening. Yeah. Are and to again, that. you know, yeah. in this Western narrative, yeah. and she, perma- permanently a girl, she will always be. You know, she's a woman. She's she's doing a PPS at Oxford. Yeah, but she'll always be the girl child. She'll yeah. always be the yeah. example of the girl child. Yeah, yeah. and um, you know those um, you know those well-meaning white male US talk show hosts will still have her on in ten, twenty years, asking if they can adopt her. Yeah, um, as as they did, I think, and so, so she doesn't have a perfectly adequate. Yeah, God, I mean, awesome <laughs> communist daddy. <laughs> Sorry, that sounded a bit obscene. Um, so, so, you know, this is um, uh, a sort of a starker version of what we see at these International Women's Day celebrations, which have gradually and, you know, um, become more and more professionalised. Well, they used to be very governmental and maybe that was just because I was in camera for many years and would see them well, in that context. But, and yeah. that, but now... They, yes, they've been, gone from being governmental to being corporate, you know, which... Well, this is I, the... Yeah. Yeah, this is kind of like the um, uh, the way that the, the West has gone in the 20th century, right? I mean, International Working Women's Day started out 101 years ago um, with the rebellion during World War I by um, uh, the female workers of a textile factory in Petrograd. You are not agreeing with my account of the history of International Working Women's Day. No, that is not my disagreeing with your account. This is my saying you are a liar. You told me you weren't going to talk about the history of International Women's Day. But anyway, go back to it. (laughs) We'll edit that out. 
she didn't edit it out. So, so, so it has this, this truly grassroots, spontaneous beginning and then it becomes, you know, it disappears for a while and then it becomes something that is adopted by the state and then it becomes something that is adopted by private enterprise, which is how you see politics going across the 20th century. Something, you know, for a brief period in the early 20th century, people understood that politics was them, that there was that politics wasn't a parliamentary thing, um, that that governance could possibly be in their hands, and then you know it became the property of the state, and you know and we get other dreadful things like Harmony Day, you know, which was something that was instituted by John Howard, yeah, you know, where we all pretend that we don't live in a horribly racist country for twenty four hours. Well, because we weren't going to talk about race, you know. Yes, why talk about race? Let's just have a nice day where we say, oh, well, you know, there are no differences and it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, we'll con- and we'll construct it around religion because because then we don't have to talk about race. And, you know, I mean, this is not to say that there weren't, you know, a grumpy group of radical women who did do their bit on mm-hmm. International Women's Day. I'm sure you've attended ragtag International Women's Day demonstrations, as have I. But these have pretty much gone now and they're, you know, I mean they're still celebrated in unions which have themselves largely become very conservative organisations, which is by no means to dissuade you from joining one. Join one and annoy the fuck out of them is my advice until they do represent you and your needs. Um, so it become a, became a sort of a state thing and now it's a it's a fully private thing. And, and we see things like, you know, um, did you follow the whole fearless girl um, face-to-face with the raging bull at Wall Street. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. That was amazing. So, um, you know, the fearless girl was, you know, the property of a finance company that actually had, I think it was a mutual fund um, that concentrated on uh, companies which had great gender representation on their board. Now, the, the bull on Wall Street is actually a piece of guerrilla art. You know, it was done by um, an, an artist who um, forged it and wanted to evoke something of the American spirit of striving. Okay, I don't agree with the artist's conception of America, but he, he placed it there illegally. And then the fearless girl is placed just a few weeks after Donald Trump's inauguration. Yeah. Is placed face-to-face with the bull by a group of, by a, a, a large finance organisation and women that you and I know and have worked with are among those across the West saying, isn't this wonderful? Isn't this statue wonderful? She's really standing up to power. No, this girl was herself forged in the foundry of fucking power. Like how can we now see this girl, this fearless girl? I mean, in some ways, of course, for me, Fearless Girl is a perfect statue for what Western liberal white feminism has become, right? Yeah, well, infantilised for a start. Exactly. Oh, good. But fully funded um, by the finance sector, a resistance, you know, a false resistance, something utterly manufactured, something static, something staring a symbol that came from nowhere in the face for no reason. But both of these items are in fact millimetres apart in their ideological reference points 
And both of them are saying Wall Street is great. And today... Well, or it will be if there were just more women on boards. Well, shit, yeah, you know, or more people of colour on boards. Yeah, that, because, that's, that's diversity. Yeah, diversity. Diversity is so important. I mean, for fuck's sake, you know? And this is... If Oprah was sending in the drones, they'd be, it'd be entirely different. Well, you know, they'd be compassionate drones, wouldn't they? Love drones. There'd be love with every death. Mm. I'm optimistic and you've chided me for that in the past. And you probably have a point. I don't encounter racism and you do. I barely leave the house to encounter any kind of prejudice whatsoever, (laughs) to tell you the truth. But do you have any optimism about the near future of feminism? Do you think that the women who attend these events, the women who really do support power, the women who are uncritical of the finance sector role in their, you know, liberal feminist industry, who just say that they're intersexual, intersectional and believe that uh, that is enough, Th- these women who believe that, that power will trickle down, these women who believe that only if you believe and we're inspiring role models for you, like we're the technocrats of feminism, do you think that this will begin to crack and younger women will start to think, oh, jeez, I can't afford your lunch. I don't want to aspire to be like you. I can see the power that surrounds you, the the power that props you up. I can see what you're blind to. Do you think, because, I mean, you've got a, a young, brilliant daughter, um, and what, what, what do you think that new feminist activists will do? You know, do you think this machine can be sustained and there'll be all, I mean, let's face it, there are many women doing very well out of the, the feminism industry, right? Yeah. Look, I'm reluctant to, it's such a cliche and one that has been rightly critiqued and mocked to start a sentence with, as a mother. But I will say that does force me to shape my response in a particular way because I am not, I, I feel like I can't afford to be quite as cynical as is my impulse because, because I the person who means the most to me in the world is a young woman, and, a and young yes, feminist. and and yeah, and I and I and I cannot afford to be completely pessimistic either because, you know, because I, because I love my daughter because I want the future to because once you start being too pessimistic, then you don't invest in the future, and yeah. I need us to invest in the future. Come on, you care about all the daughters. I'm not yeah, a mother. Oh yeah, quite. I'm not and a mother. I do. I do an online radio program listened to mm. by tens of people, which I didn't tell you before you came over, with a bear. You know, with a with a synthetic but rather adorable bear called Knackers. Hi, Knackers. You've been very quiet throughout. Yeah, you don't have to have a biological child to have an attachment to important to have important people in your life who are younger than yeah. you and for whom you cannot therefore I afford just, to invest in the future. I to look at their the lives, future. the poor babies, and mm. I just—I mean, not just those in the West, but those everywhere. Yeah, and I mean, I sort of look at the conflict. I mean, because they're still being fed this, you know, be empowered bullshit line. And I mean the marginality to which, and I'm sorry if you think that I'm being, uh, you know, um, uh, um, anti-feminist here. I'm sure you won't. But um, the, the, the marginalization of young men in you, you, across the world, you know, I mean, yeah. what do you think that it feels like when the UN pushes a whole lot of pamphlets about girls to your part of the global south? How does that feel to young men? I mean, to 
the young men of 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 Britain, the underclass of of Britain, um, you know, they're now performing very very badly in schools. It's just a fact. And to and to simply say, oh well, it's our turn now. I mean, fuck off. You know, I mean, freedom is for well, everyone. Well, it's just a lose lose thing too. Well, like young men are empirically and statistically more likely to be attacked by strangers on the street than young women are and it plays against and not to mm. it plays against young women too to overlook that because young women are made to feel that the streets are not safe and therefore may decide of their own accord that they won't take that risk when actually it it's safer for them I mean, is there any bloke in your mm. life that you know well who hasn't copped a bit of biffo yeah i'm like, I, don't, I can't think of. I don't know no. a bloke that mm. hasn't been whacked, mm. and I've never believe it or not. I've never been whacked. Can you believe that? Like with this mouth? <laughs> like seriously? Um, You're too scary, Helen. I, there's never an excuse for hitting a woman. There's never an excuse for hitting. But you know, so you know, it's this extra level of gender antagonism, and and you know, and people really believe. Um, I mean, like this really serves the white liberal ideal. You know, I mean, we're constantly told that the global South is being lifted out of poverty. Okay, unless you're friends with China, no, it's fucking not. So you know, I've actually had well-meaning white people say to me, "Well, it's their turn now." You know, I mean, okay, a it's not, and you know, if you're white, you have a much higher statistical chance of, you know, better material wealth. But your material wealth in the West has been descending in most Western countries across the last 30 or 40 years. So, I mean, why celebrate the descent of somebody else's fortune? I mean, isn't the point to share for all of those of us who consider ourselves progressive or of the left or or committed to social justice or committed to equality, um, fuck those of you who say you're just interested in equal opportunity. I have nothing to say to you. you. You seriously are just interested in equal opportunity? No, be interested in human flourishing. Aim higher. But for all of those who are interested in everybody on the planet having a better deal and not just being rewarded for ex- excellence, I mean, you know, surely you oughtn't to be saying, ha-ha, you know. And, 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 oh, and treating it as a zero-sum game because yeah. that is why patriarchy that that is why the advancement of women is resisted because men think it will come at their expense you know so guess what that's why and yes. just, just you have it, it's necessary to say that that a fair deal for women it doesn't mean that men Although, are going to unfortunately get... under current economic conditions what the entry of the middle class female workforce mm. um has meant for a lot of men is yes. Yeah, well, it, yes, it's, it's... Absolutely. I mean, you can't just create... I mean, there's this whole kind of capitalist bullshit about, oh, more women in the economy is good for economic growth. Well, what the fuck does economic growth mean then, my mm. white liberal feminist friend? I mean, don't use the capitalist rationale for feminism, like without exploring the possibilities of that capitalism and what that capitalism can do under a system which does ensure, I'm getting all Marxy on you now, you can pick up the bear, um, you know, that th- th- does guarantee some level of inequality. Knackers and the Vag. With no thanks to finance feminism, but all thanks to Dr. Shakira Hussein. Her book is From Victims to Suspects. 
her patience for the vag is astounding. The Bear and the Lady will be back next week with fresh descent from Melbourne, Australia. Prepare your outfit for the uprising. <laughs>